Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yasmin, in today's episode, we talk about so many different things as it relates to women's health. And one thing we talk about specifically is transitioning off of hormonal birth control, which is something that we talk about quite a bit at BIA because we have a lot of women who are doing seed cycling as they're transitioning off for whatever reason it is. Maybe they're looking to have a baby, maybe hormonal birth control has not set well with their bodies. I know this is something that you have a lot of experience with. And there's actually a lot of data out there to show what hormonal birth control does to our bodies. And it's kind of interesting. In some cases, it's absolutely necessary. But in some cases, the body does not react well. We know that if you are struggling with something before you get on hormonal birth control, when you get off, it can be even worse. So there's people who develop PCOS, maybe they get low estrogen, maybe they get estrogen dominance, really painful periods, acne, just all kinds of stuff. And I know this is something that you went through, which is actually what led us to create BIA. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your experience of getting off of hormonal birth control and how your body responded. Yeah. I mean, it's literally what you just said. It was crazy because I I didn't think that coming off birth control would make my symptoms be significantly worse. So before birth control, I got on there because I had really bad PMS at the age of like 13. And, you know, the biggest thing for me was just cramps coming back with like, it felt like a vengeance. Like I'm coming off birth control. I haven't had a period, right? For like, gosh, it's embarrassing to even say, I don't even know how long I was on birth control, like seven years. I barely had a period. I forgot what it was even like to have a period. So when it came, it came with vengeance. I had horrible cramps. My breast tenderness was really, really bad. My mood was definitely impacted, I would say every month more so than before. And the worst part was in in all this is just the horrible, horrible hormonal acne I developed. You know, the PMS symptoms in terms of like the cramps, as a woman, you kind of, you think, obviously now we preach this, that it's not normal. But at the time I'm like, okay, this is just how it is every month. I'm going to suffer. But the acne was the worst part. I was getting it, you know, all over my face, my cheeks, my forehead. It was cystic acne. And it was getting me to a point where I didn't even want to go socialize. And I'm like, I'm not that person. I've never been embarrassed about anything and not wanting to see friends and family. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, I guess it's a blessing I went through that because like you said, we did kind of discover Bia and obviously seed cycling from my own journey was so, so crucial. Um, But I wish that I was listening to conversations like what we typically are having and sharing things that I wish I could have done, maybe even on birth control to support my gut and to support my hormones as I was transitioning off. Yes. And as we will learn in this episode, there is so much that someone can do if they are looking to transition off of birth control, hormonal birth control, I should say. 
Now, there's a chance that you come off of birth control and nothing happens. And that's best case scenario. You can kind of get back to your regular life and it's all good. And there's times where it can be pretty rough, especially if there's disturbances in the gut microbiome, if there's mineral deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies. But we talk all about that in today's episode. Um, We also go into things like mold exposure and thyroid health and gut health. And we explore the root causes to common symptoms and what we can do about it today. We talk about all things hormones. So you're going to learn the best way to come off birth control, natural alternatives to painkillers, which is you know huge. I know a lot of people are taking painkillers, especially around that time of the month. So we'll talk about that. We talk about the root cause of hair loss and how to finally clear your skin. Yes, Dr. Priya Vaziri joins us this week. She's a licensed naturopathic doctor practicing in the state of California, and her passion revolves around women's health. After years of struggling with her own menstrual cycles, gut health, and anxiety, without any relief, she found the power of natural medicine, and it changed her life as well as her career. This is going to be a fun one, so let's jump into it. So Dr. Priya, we're excited you're here today. And I want to actually start about talking about my own hormonal imbalances, which started a long time ago, but it really didn't impact me until I got off birth control and it completely wreaked havoc on my body. I had bad acne, bad periods, breast tenderness, mood swings, and just so much more. So I'd love to talk about birth control recovery. What is your advice for anyone who is coming off birth control? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you had so many struggles coming off the pill. It's really common. I see it more often than not because that educational piece is missing when it comes to birth control, where we're told we could just come off of it and it's totally fine. For some people it is, but for a lot of people it isn't. And I found that whatever issues you've had going into the pill with are often the same or tenfold when you come off of it. Because it's not like the issues still stay there. They can grow. They're not really being addressed. So anytime I have someone who's on the cusp of wanting to come off the birth control, my first question is, are you off of it now? If not, great. Let's spend like three months really like supporting your health so that you have an easy transition off of it. But if you're already off of it, we can just dive into that work too. So a lot of that includes getting on a good multivitamin to kind of address any nutritional deficiencies that might have come up, supporting the liver because the liver is doing such a big job in processing those hormones throughout the years. And most people just need liver support in this day and age anyway. It's just natural wear and tear on the body, um, supporting the gut microbiome because the pill can have an effect on your gut along with so many other things. And we know gut health has been quite a big issue. People are talking about it more and more, more and it really impacts your hormones. Um, and then just bringing down like inflammation, supporting lifestyle, just finding movement that works for you, eating in a way that's really nourishing. So it's a really multifaceted approach that you're taking, but getting the steps right can help a lot with lessening those symptoms. We'd love to hear more about your story. What's so fascinating about people who step into the space of like functional medicine, integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, is they often have their own personal story, which led them down this road. So we'd love to hear more about you. How did you get into being interested in hormones and naturopathic medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked this often, and I love talking about this because I feel like 
people think that my health is so, you know, I'm a naturopathic doctor. You see the things I post about. So I think people always think I've been super healthy, but I was really unhealthy as a teen. Like I just had no idea of what was healthy and what wasn't. I would eat a lot of junk food when I was in college. I, you know, I was going out a lot. I wasn't taking care of my body. I just had no concept of health other than maybe some of the societal norms around health in terms of if you are thin, then you must be healthy. Like that's kind of what my mindset was at. So I really wasn't taking care of my body in my teenage years, my early 20s. And this all kind of accumulated to me having a lot of health problems around the age of like 21. I had really bad anxiety. I had really bad ongoing gut issues. I came off the pill and my hormones were just all over the place. Like it was just, I felt like every aspect of my health had just completely gone haywire. Being in your early 20s and being told like, okay, this is just what it is. We don't really have any solutions for you. Like you have anxiety, you're constipated, and you just have hormonal acne. Like there's nothing we can do other than going back on the pill. Um, so that was really eye-opening to me because in my head, I was like, well, I can't live the rest of my life like this. Like this can't just be the answer. So I felt really overwhelmed. And the only thing that felt in my control was just kind of looking at my lifestyle. So I started just working out more, eating really healthy, like researching what I was putting in my body, what I could do to help supplement wise. And that made such a big impact on my health overall. That kind of just sparked my interest in naturopathic medicine and wanting to pursue this as a career. And what do you think that, I mean, it's such a big question, but what do you think were some of the things that made the biggest difference in your journey? And I know there's no quick fixes. Um, There's always not just one cause to our ailments, but where were some of the things that you started to do that you felt like, okay, I'm making progress here? I think my diet was huge. Like when I say my diet was not healthy, it really wasn't. Like I was the girl that was eating a Caesar salad and a Diet Coke for lunch every day because it was under 500 calories. And then I was doing a whole lot of cardio thinking like, okay, I must be doing health, right? Which wasn't, which wasn't at all. So when I really stopped and I was paying attention to, am I even eating vegetables outside of romaine lettuce? I wasn't. So adding in those things made a huge difference. Focusing in on foods that were really supportive of my gut health made some of the biggest differences because I was really struggling with my health. Um, A big thing that helped me a lot was taking dairy out of my diet, which doesn't work for everyone. But for me, that was a really big change that I made that I saw big results from. And I think working on my mental health was, of course, a huge aspect of it too, because I had a lot of different types of traumas that I wasn't acknowledging. And that was all playing a big role in my health too. And I'm curious, Dr. Priya, like how are you working on your mental health? Because I think no one really talks about that piece because we were actually, Kay and I were just talking about this before the podcast where you can have your food all dialed in, you can have your sleep, but if you're dealing with some type of anxiety or not having joy or being in a tough life situation, like all those stressors can impact and erase everything you're doing. So were there certain tools that kind of helped you work through what you were going through at the time? Yeah, I would say in the initial first few years, going to therapy was really helpful for me because up until then I had a very avoidant habit of dealing with issues that came up. Like to me, it was just, if I don't think about it, if I don't address it, then the stress isn't real and I can move on from it. But that really catches up with you. So really going into the trenches and finding a therapist that works on a holistic level with me, that kind of went deeper with me, um, that helped a lot. It wasn't easy because it was digging up a lot of like old memories. It was really tough at times. And it can sometimes like therapy is not easy. It could be more overwhelming because you have a lot of ups and downs. You have a lot of emotions that come up. So you have to feel really prepared to go through something like that. 
And I think I put in a lot of work initially. And then now I'm in this place where I feel I, I feel like I'm done with some of the heavy hitting, digging deep into all my past trauma. And I'm more in this space of what can I do on a daily basis that just brings me joy. And that's kind of the way I take care of my mental health, where every day I try to do something, whether it's for 15 minutes or an hour that just makes me feel really happy and relaxed and isn't necessarily working aggressively on my mental health by like doing self-help stuff or listening to podcasts or anything like that. Just pure joy, like reading fiction, going on a bike ride, baking a new recipe, just things that are very like mellow, I would say. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah, that's such a metaphor for tackling things the holistic way because conventional medicine is like slap a Band-Aid on it and you'll feel better for maybe like three months or six months and then you'll probably feel worse and then maybe you slap another Band-Aid on it. But what you're essentially talking about, whether it be with trauma or with just what we do with our diets, with removing toxins, all of that, in the beginning, it can be kind of painful. Like all this stuff can come up uh, even when people are doing like gut healing, like you might feel worse at first and then you're, you got to get over that hump and then you like tackle it lifelong essentially. So I love what you're saying there. It's, it's, um, it's definitely more of a holistic way again of approaching things. Yeah. And we call it the healing crisis for that very reason, because sometimes when you, I think when you start to embark on natural medicine, holistic healing, it's not as simple as I want to get away from pharmaceuticals and I want something natural because with that, you're making such an intentional step in terms of I really want to examine my life and where things might be going haywire. And then you start to uncover other things that are going on. So it's like this very deep layer of healing that once you kind of shift your view towards that, you can't really stop. You know, you start to see, okay, I could get rid of these toxins around me. I can eat healthier. Oh, there are some boundaries I can enforce that help. Maybe I should go see a healer, a therapist, something like that. So I think what you said, like first you get through that hump where things feel really overwhelming sometimes, but then more smoother sailings. You know, we get a lot of people, and of course, with our seed cycling protocol, it's one small tool in someone's toolkit. And we get women all the time that are like, when am I going to start seeing results? And we're like, it, this is a long-term approach, right? It's not like birth control or taking Advil and you're immediately going to feel something. So if you have women who are seeing you and they're like, Priya, like, 
how do I stay motivated to this longer term approach? Because there's not a lot of people who think this way. You have to really be committed to really see the results. So if someone's listening and they're like, this sounds super overwhelming. I'm in so much, I'm struggling right now. Like, how do you keep them motivated to take this more holistic approach that might might take more time? I think that's a really good point you're bringing up because I do get these questions a lot too. And what I like to remind people is, that however old you are, you don't, you know, you didn't develop these problems overnight. It wasn't like you woke up one day and all of a sudden you had these hormonal issues or you had this bloating that came up out of nowhere. It's been years of lifestyle, habits, medications, whatever it may be that has brought you to this place. So there's no way that you can undo it overnight either. And so I think I think it's really tough in today's day and age because we're all so used to instant gratification. We see the way social media is impacting people's neurological health, the way that people are just kind of addicted to these quick hits of dopamine. So it gets harder when to get into the trenches of natural healing because it is slower. It takes a lot of consistency. But what I just tell people is once you get to a point where you feel good in your body, like all of that is so worth it. And then years down the line, this is going to feel like such a blimp. Like it's going to, this time period that you spend really healing is going to feel so small in comparison to the years that you feel really good. And it's going to prevent so many issues down the line as well when you're older. So you're not struggling in your forties, fifties, sixties. You can actually enjoy your quality of life later on too. Totally. I actually want to pivot because you talked about dopamine for a second. So I'd love to, to talk about that this idea has become very almost trendy of a dopamine cleanse. And so is this something that you, A, recommend to the people that you work with, and B, what is it? Yeah, so if we're thinking about the same thing, where I've also seen the trends on Instagram, TikTok, where people are talking about a dopamine cleanse, where you're basically you know, removing things that are going to be quick hits, social media being a big one. I don't know. I always look at these wellness trends that I see come up as just that. They're trends that are the newest thing people are talking about. And I don't think any of these trends are really sustainable. I think it's not a matter of let's cut you off cold turkey on the stuff on anything that's causing these types of reactions for you. And with like dopamine, it's like the reward center where, you know, sugar can give us that quick hit of dopamine and reward. Getting likes on social media can do that. Um, I think it's more more of finding that balance. I never recommend any sort of these like cleanses, detox, anything like that, because it's never sustainable. And you might go through it for three days feeling great, but then you're just going to crash and burn. And you're going to be right back where you started from. So instead of trying to do something more drastic, I would just say, hey, be really mindful of the things that make you feel good during your day and the things that don't make you feel good. And just try to tip the balance a little bit more where maybe like you're trying to get a couple more things in daily that make you feel good and a couple less activities that don't make you feel as good and kind of work on that slower scale. I love, and I think with holistic healing, and this is something that I've had to, it took me a long time on my journey to understand is tapping into just even how I feel. Like you were just saying with the dopamine cleanse, like what brings you joy? Where do you have to have boundaries? And I think with holistic healing, it's also understanding how do you feel when you remove something from your diet when you shift a lot, you know, your lifestyle and getting that communication between your body and your brain, at least for me, because for so many years, I just go, go, go. And I wasn't even acknowledging myself took a good year, year and a half. And that's something I still work on. Um, so I just, that came to mind when you were saying that, because even you tapping into who you are and what brings you joy is just so powerful, as simple as that sounds. I talk about this with my patients all the time. And it's, so crazy how many people when I ask them like what 
brings you joy, not like, oh, I work out because I know I'm supposed to, or I spend time like on the phone with my friends because like I want to maintain, like I'm like, what brings you like outside of things that you know are good? Like what actually brings you joy? Like what are the things you enjoyed doing as a kid? Was it painting? Was it playing a certain sport? Was it listening to a type of music, dancing, like those types of activities? Because I think most of us are pretty dialed into all right, this form of movement can make me feel good. This type of social interaction makes me feel good. But I feel like it's still not enough of like going inwards, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. And I think even when I ask myself that question, especially lately, it takes me a second. I'm like, wait, what? What brings me joy? I don't even know if I've thought of that in a long time. And I think a lot of people will be surprised. They might think, oh yeah, I know what brings me joy. But if you really sit down, it's like, it might take a second, especially we women don't really prioritize joy on a day-to-day basis. So it's such a good um, habit to include. I want to kind of pivot over now to something that we talk about a lot at BIA, which is PMS. And one of the biggest symptoms I think that we see um, for people who are struggling with really bad PMS symptoms is really strong cravings, especially in their luteal phase leading up to their period. So strong cravings for sweet and salty foods, and maybe people who just have those cravings throughout the month. It's not just during their luteal phase. So what are our cravings telling us and how can we overcome our cravings? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it could be as simple as a nutritional deficiency, for example, magnesium, or maybe you're not dehydrating properly. You don't have enough of the proper electrolytes. So I would start small there and just kind of evaluate, am I getting enough nutrients in? This is where seed cycling could be really beneficial. Am I hydrating and actually adding like electrolytes in, or am I overhydrating at this point? Like starting kind of there and also as really assessing your diet as well. Am I eating mostly processed foods or am I doing whole foods that'll bring those nutrients in? Sometimes that's enough to curb cravings, but then sometimes we get into the more tricky territories of maybe there's a hormonal imbalance at play here. Maybe in that luteal window, there's an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone levels leading to cravings. Maybe there's something deeper going on with the gut and you might notice this then more across the month where you have random cravings. Like, is there a potential for some type of dysbiosis? yeast overgrowth, um, H. pylori, is there something that's causing disruption in the microbiome that's then either causing nutritional deficiencies or maybe with candida causing you to crave more sugars? So whenever I see situations like this, we always start at, okay, what's something we can easily tackle, such as the nutritional deficiencies? And if that's not budging, let's go into the deeper areas that take a little bit more time and start assessing that next. You've mentioned a few things Earlier in the interview and just right now, so many of us are dealing with gut issues. We hear the word leaky gut. And I'm curious, from your perspective, what are some signs um, that someone might have poor gut health and maybe some steps that they can start taking today to support their gut? Bloating, of course, is a huge one that can indicate leaky gut. There could be other things going on like bacteria overgrowth. Um, There could be stomach acid issues. Skin is a big one. Your skin is really a reflection of what's going on inside. So of course, some people might experience hormonal acne where it's more cyclical. But if you notice you're getting acne all throughout the month, you're getting a lot like on your forehead, a lot on your cheeks. You might be, you might need to look deeper into your gut health because that's a big sign of it as well. Um, but I do see leaky gut pretty often in my practice too. I see this anytime there's some sort of ongoing gut issue, there's that risk of there being intestinal permeability issues too, because 
a lot of times if there's constipation, if there is diarrhea causing a lot of inflammation, if there's foods that aren't being properly absorbed, or if you're eating a food sensitivity that you're unaware of, all this can damage the gut lining long-term and then cause those symptoms. Um, but I would say definitely bloating and skin issues are some of the bigger ones that I see tied in with leaky gut. So let's talk about uh, what leaky gut is. I have gone through my own journey with leaky gut. When I was in college, I switched over to a fully processed vegan diet, nothing against vegan diets, but I was eating a lot of like frankenfoods and soy, probably some glyphosate thrown in there. It completely threw my gut off. And then when I was diagnosed with leaky gut, I just didn't even know like, what does this mean? What's going on? And somebody finally had to explain it to me. And I feel like it helped me understand what was happening and what I needed to do. So for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know what leaky gut is, can you explain it to us? Absolutely. So leaky gut is also known as intestinal hyperpermeability. So looking at your gut lining itself, you have a mucosal lining that's really protective. It also helps absorb um, nutrients from the foods that you're eating. But the issue that can happen is if you're doing something that can potentially disrupt the gut lining, what's happening is you have these tight junctions that are really supportive of your gut lining. And they're really good at keeping things that shouldn't get out, you know, stay in within the gut. But over time, these can loosen up a little bit. So some of the things that can cause this is gluten, for example. A lot of people have a non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So you could be eating a lot of gluten and it could be causing issues with those tight junctions. There could be other food sensitivities. If you're chronically using NSAIDs like ibuprofen, um, if you're eating a highly processed diet that's more inflammatory. So anything that could just cause that sort of damage to the gut lining over time will cause those tight junctions to not be as tight essentially anymore. So when they open up a little bit, this creates room for the foods that you're eating to essentially not escape. That's not the right word. I don't want you to think you have like food floating around in the rest of you, but it can cause like macromolecules to escape as, and not like those micromolecules that are normal to be absorbed through the intestines. Um, so with, that ha with what happens there is that it causes an inflammatory response in the rest of the body. So some of those symptoms like the bloating, the skin issues, joint pain, mood issues, all of these can start to come up as a byproduct of that inflammatory response. So the main goal is one, figuring out what is causing this ongoing leaky gut issue because you have to remove that, whether it's a certain type of medication like those NSAIDs that you're taking, or maybe it's a food that you're sensitive to, um, remove that and then really spend some time bringing in nutrients that are going to heal the gut lining. Yeah. And you mentioned NSAIDs, which I definitely want to get into because I think I, I talked to quite a few women who take a lot of painkillers uh, every month, you know, sometimes even preemptively. There's people who are like, I know it's going to hurt, so I'm just going to pop one right now. And without thinking that there are major consequences and side effects that can come with long-term use of NSAIDs. So you talked about how it can disturb the gut microbiome. Um, one thing that I saw that you provided on your Instagram page is just alternatives. What can people do to relieve pain, to relieve cramps that are, uh, that's avoiding taking NSAIDs? Yeah. I love castor oil packs. It's not for everyone, I know, because there's a little bit of maintenance that goes behind it. They could get a little messy, but I swear by castor oil packs. People that I've convinced to do them regularly swear by it too now, but castor oil is 
very anti-inflammatory in nature. So you could do a castor oil pack over your pelvic region and your liver. Um, just don't do it while you're on your period because it can increase bleeding. But you can do um, you could do it a few times a week for an hour at a time. You could wear it to bed. It can help improve sleep quality too. But this helps a lot with reducing painful periods. Um, if that's not your vibe, you can try things like cramp bark. That works really well. Um, there's this combination supplement called Cramp Bark Extra by Vitanica that works amazing. So it's kind of like a natural alternative to NSAIDs in the sense that you take it when you have cramps. You could do two capsules every few hours. It'll knock down the pain. It might still be there a little bit, but definitely makes it manageable. Um, high doses of ginger have been has been really studied as well. So that's an alternative you can try too. But more than anything else, anytime I, I see someone struggling with painful periods, we want to get down to the root of what is driving chronic inflammation in the body and tackling that. So all those things that I mentioned are really helpful for symptom management, but for long-term care, you really want to focus in on if there's a hormonal imbalance or if there's something going on in the body that's causing chronic inflammation. Yeah. And one thing that Yasmin and I have done both felt since we started seed cycling quite regularly is we're both like, hey, I just got my period and I don't have cramps. Like, what is happening? So there's so much that can be done. Sorry, Yasmin, I cut you off. No, I was going to say that because I was that person that was taking, you know, I wish I knew all of this when I was going through my own hormonal imbalances and horrible cramps, like to the point I couldn't work, I couldn't get up. I remember taking cramp bark like all the time, like an addict. I'm like, it's not working. I don't know what's going on. But, you know, shifting our diet and having anti-inflammatory foods has been game changing. And it's crazy. We literally text each other every month. We're like, we don't even have any symptoms of my no PMS, nothing. And for someone who had such horrible cramps to now be on the other side, like, I'm just so passionate about this because and uh, there's so many natural ways that you can support yourself and you you don't need to suffer. And I feel like Priya, and I'm sure this was a lot of your also clients, like so many women just deal with these painful periods every month and they think it's normal. And it's actually like a big red flag. And like you said, it could be, there could be underlying hormonal imbalances that are worth checking. And I think that's what we always want to bring light on is that you don't need to suffer. And it's so important to just look into your health because it could impact so many different things. But one question, you know, you've talked about throughout this interview, just how important eating a whole foods diet was for your own journey and what you recommend to your own patients. What are maybe some of your top foods that you recommend for optimal hormonal health? So some of my favorites are beets because they're very supportive of the liver and your liver plays a big role in your overall hormonal health. So along the same line with that, broccoli sprouts, amazing for how you're metabolizing excess estrogen. Avocados, I think they're a great source of healthy fats. A lot of women are not eating enough fats and fats are the backbone of your hormones. So you definitely need them. Um, any antioxidants really like your berries, cherries, um, red bell peppers, your citruses, anything that's high in um, antioxidants is going to be incredible. So what I always tell people is you really can't go wrong with a whole foods diet. If you're eating the rainbow, if you're eating quality protein, it's really hard to mess it up at that point. I have a lot of people that will go through their diet and they're on a whole foods diet and they're like, do you think this is good enough? I'm like, you're doing amazing. You're eating real food. Like that is incredible. So I always just try to encourage people to really like, and analyze their diet in the sense of, are you getting enough of your fruits and veggies in? Because that's where you get a lot of those nutrients in. Same with your seeds as well, um, your nuts, like anywhere where you could get more of those vitamins and minerals. 
I think a lot of people would be surprised too. I, I know I am when I look at the week and I'm like, how many colorful fruits and vegetables did I actually have? And it's like, oh, maybe 10 or something max. But um, taking inventory is such a good idea because I think sometimes we can also overestimate the amount of like colorful foods that we're getting too. So I, I love that tip. Yeah. I always tell people to go with the seasons, check out what's in season and just stick with those foods because then you're naturally getting a really good diversity of fruits and vegetables in. And you mentioned quality protein. I think that's super important. Can you define what that is for anyone listening who's like, what does that even mean? Yeah. I feel like everyone has a different definition of this. And I, for me personally, I would say like good quality animal protein. Um, I've tried being vegan and vegetarian. It does not work for my body. I'm very much in the camp of everyone is unique. So different diets can work for different people. So for me, I do really well when I'm eating a lot of like grass fed beef, when I'm incorporating eggs into my diet and when I'm doing more minimal of like chicken and turkeys, like the poultry type of meats. Um, some people are totally fine doing from like doing um, tempeh, tofu. Some people do better on more of a seafood diet. So I would say whatever your protein choice is, just try to prioritize that as organic or grass fed. Um, when it comes to the grocery list, protein is always what I prioritize spending the most on and everything else is kind of within the realms of, okay, what can we budget out? It doesn't always have to be a hundred percent organic, but definitely protein is something that I prioritize buying the highest quality where I can. I want to talk about um, mood and hormones. Uh, I think that most women can experience some sort of mood fluctuation throughout their life, whether it be during PMS, during perimenopause, during menopause or postmenopause. And I want to talk about this specifically because I, it's affected me, but it affects so many women. What is the connection between our mood and our hormones? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So our hormones play a huge role, especially in that luteal phase. If you're noticing a lot of mood changes in the week or two leading up to your period, that can very much be with your hormonal fluctuations because during the first half of your cycle, during your follicular phase, you know, you have more of your estrogens and your androgens, your testosterones that are at play, which can usually make people feel really good because those are our types of hormones that are more energizing. They make you feel more vibrant, more energetic. And then when you get into the second half of your menstrual cycle, you, um, you have an increase in your progesterone. And so that ratio between your progesterone and your estrogen can make a huge impact on your mood. If you have too low of progesterone, you can experience a lot of anxiety and irritability leading up to your period. If you have too much estrogen, it can cause the same issues. You can, if you have too low of those hormones, both of them, you can experience low mood. So anytime you're having more of those cyclical mood issues, definitely dial into what is the ratio between your estrogen and your progesterone levels. Whereas if you're having like more of this unsteady mood all throughout the month, that's when I would dive a little bit deeper into gut health and neurotransmitters and environmental toxins and trying to identify, is there something else going on that could be indirectly impacting my hormones? I see environmental toxins like mold being a huge one where you see more of like this up and down pattern with mood all throughout the month. And I mean, mold really impacts your hormones too. Yeah. I want to talk about that because I'm sure that there's a lot of people who suspect they have a mold issue or people who have no clue. But before we talk about that, I want to go back to something that's mind blowing to me because what you said is that during the time where our testosterone is higher, our androgens are higher, we're more in a space of like 
feeling good. We feel more balanced. And this is kind of crazy because this is what men experience like pretty much all the time, right? So to me, when people talk about this, like uh, they demonize this idea of like, oh, she's on her period. She's PMSing. She's this and that. It's like, we women go through these cyclical changes and men are like, sure, flat. I'm doing a flat line for anybody who can't see this. Their, their hormones are kind of steady and they have these like mood supporting hormones throughout the month. So it's kind of interesting to me to talk about this because it's like we women need to a maybe live in more of a cyclical way to support those hormones, but also like it's okay if you and your partner, if they are a man, are feeling different throughout the month. If your moods are a little bit different and his are more steady, there are differences between men and women. I agree. I really had to teach my husband that. I had to be like, listen, you can go out on a tough hike any day of the month and you're completely fine as long as you've eaten well and you've slept well, whereas I can't do that. There are times of the month where I just do not have that energy because I'm either on my period or close to my period. So try again in like a week or two when I have more energy because it is, it's so cyclical. And I think the more you could be understanding of that, the less you'll beat yourself up in terms of, well, I had a really great workout last week. Why can't I do it this week? Or like last week I was more productive at work. Why aren't I doing the same now? It's natural. It's totally normal. And the more you can kind of tap into that, the more relief you'll almost get for feeling those feelings too. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to preach that for sure. Um, so I want to talk about mold. Did you have your own experiences with mold toxicity? I'd love to hear more about that. So I had my suspected issue with mold when I was in college, never confirmed, but I part of my history was I was on antibiotics for three months straight because I had a never ending sinus infection that I now think was because I was living in a multi apartment. Um, but once I got out of the atmosphere, all those symptoms went away. So for me, it wasn't an issue. Some people aren't able to detox mold efficiently. So if they have been exposed to it, it kind of lingers more long-term for them. And then you start to see the ramification on the rest of their health, especially their hormones. I can I see mold make a big impact on hormones and menstrual cycles, um, along with mood, gut health, just everything. But I recently, and I know you're in San Diego too, so we've got a lot of really weird rain recently this winter. But yeah, we had like a little bit of a mold scare recently, but it was, it's fine. It's been hashed out. But back in my early 20s was definitely a hit. I, anytime we're looking for a house now and anytime that I walk in and I suspect my realtor knows, like do not even go close to a property that could have mold. These people will freak out because it can be devastating. And it's actually quite hard to, for, in some situations, if you don't know what you're looking for, to discover if you have a mold issue or if if your symptoms are caused by mold toxicity. So what's the, if somebody comes to you, they definitely had mold in their house. You suspect there's mold, you know, issue in their body. What is the naturopathic approach to tackling this issue? Well, my first question would be if they're still exposed to the mold, because that would definitely change the way that we're treating things. If they're not exposed to it anymore, liver support all the way. That's the very mm -hmm. first thing we do. Depending on how bad it is, sometimes bringing in antifungal herbs Definitely mitochondria support, so things like your CoQ10, your NAD, your acetyl-L-carnitine, all those that really support your mitochondria function because mold can impact your mitochondria and cause a lot of fatigue. And then once we kind of work through that after a month or two, then we assess, okay, where did this leave more of a long, longer impact on your body? Like, do we now need to look at your hormones? Do we need to look at your gut? But in the initial few weeks, we really work on just detox. You know, there's one thing I'm now pivoting in another way, but I saw this on your Instagram and I feel like it's been 
so helpful in my journey, but really understanding our circadian rhythm and living in a lifestyle that supports that. So can you kind of talk about what is a circadian rhythm and why is it so important, especially we as women to honor that and um, optimize for that? So outside of our menstrual cycle, where we have our 28-ish day cycle, we also have our daily 24-hour cycle, our circadian rhythm. So on a day-to-day, during the daytime, cortisol is really ruling that cycle and then nighttime melatonin is ruling it. So I've seen a lot of content recently on cortisol, ways to lower it on all this stuff. And I think this is a good conversation to have around the idea that you don't necessarily need to be lowering your cortisol. It's more about balancing it because when you're waking up in the daytime, when you're waking up in the morning, you want a really nice boost of cortisol to pull you away from like that groggy, sleepy state. So some things you can do is not look at your phone immediately, spend some time just getting some sunlight outdoors. If it's a sunny day, five minutes. If it's a cloudy day, 15 to 20 minutes, um, trying to have breakfast and then your coffee. And so kind of supporting cortisol in that sense during the daytime, because it's a really energizing hormone. If we think about our stress response, when you're really stressed out, you have a lot of energy. So similarly, like cortisol in the morning just energizes you and it's a natural part of your daily cycle. And then it's supposed to gradually taper off in the evenings and at night, and then melatonin picks up so you can fall asleep and stay asleep. So at nighttime, you kind of want to do things that aren't going to give a spike in your cortisol. You want to avoid like any blue light coming from laptops or phones. You want to try to de-stress, not be looking at your emails late into the night, not eating too late into the night, um, bringing in in a good wind down routine. And then, of course, if you want to add in some supplements to support all of this, you could do adaptogens. Adaptogens are herbs that help support your cortisol and how you're releasing it throughout the day. So some of the common ones are like ashwagandha or holy basil. Um, You can bring in supplements like magnesium glycinate, L-theanine, GABA. All these things are going to be really nourishing for the nervous system. Yeah, and and, uh, what we often hear is the opposite sometimes where people feel super tired, exhausted in the morning, and then they're wired at nighttime. So if somebody wanted to assess... I mean, I think you can take all these steps before you even go down the road of advanced testing. So like do everything that Priya is talking about here. But if somebody wanted to kind of look into it a little bit deeper, what are the tests that you recommend for just evaluating your cortisol, your hormones overall? Yeah, I would definitely recommend a a 24-hour cortisol test. So usually it's a four or five point test. You could do the Dutch, which is a urine, or you can do um, a saliva test where basically you collect your first sample as soon as you wake up. You collect the next sample two hours later. You collect another sample in the evening and one at night. And then for those um, those people that might be waking up in the middle of the night and they're struggling to fall back asleep, you can collect another sample at that time too. So that way you could get a view into what exactly is happening with your cortisol all throughout the day. And you can start to see those patterns. Because often what I see with people that have that wonky, I'm tired during the morning, I'm wired at night. They're not getting enough of a cortisol boost in the morning, so they still feel really groggy from melatonin. They might be staying pretty flat, or they might get a small peak. Some people even go down in cortisol throughout the day, and then it spikes back up a little bit, and then they feel like that energy, energized, like wired and tired feeling at night. And what are your thoughts on, I? it's connected, I promise, late night eating, because There are a few people who are of the mindset of your sleep is going to improve if you stop eating three, 
at least two to three hours before bed. And then there's the other mindset of, hey, if you're waking up at 3, 4 a.m., there might be something happening where you're having low blood sugar. So this might be a good opportunity before bed to have a protein or fat-rich snack or something like that. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's such a good example of it comes down to the individual because I really do think different people have different needs for that in particular. I, for example, can eat like an hour or two before bed and I feel like I feel the best at that point. If I eat a little, if I eat like three to four hours, then I wake up in the middle of the night hungry, even if I'm eating a really well-balanced meal. Whereas I know people that need like a lot of hours before sleeping, otherwise they can't wind down and go to sleep. So I think just kind of, again, tapping back into your body, really paying attention to how you feel, keeping track, like keeping a sleep diary where you're keeping track of your habits leading up to bed and seeing what works for you and what doesn't, because you might pay attention and notice, oh, I wake up in the middle of the night, but maybe I don't need a snack. Maybe I'm just eating a big bowl of pasta for dinner and no protein. So I'm just not supporting my blood sugar. Or maybe you do need that additional snack, or maybe you're fine just waiting three to four hours and then going to bed. So I would say, Instead of trying to think that health is a one-size-fits-all and you see someone doing something online and it works for them, don't be afraid to kind of experiment with your lifestyle a little bit and find what works for you because it's going to be different for each person. And something else I came to mind, I have a lot of friends who are kind of in this camp where they feel wired and tired before they go to sleep and they kind of rely on their one glass of wine to kind of get them mellowed out, wind down and sleep. What are your thoughts as a naturopathic doctor when it comes to kind of aiding your sleep with having a glass of wine before bed? Yeah, it's not the best. It's not, I think there's a lot of different things you could do that would be a better approach. One, I just think of the long-term impact of alcohol on your liver. Even if it's just one glass, it's still putting a pressure on your liver in the long run. That's going to play a role on your hormones too. We also know that alcohol disrupts your cortisol rhythm, so that can make a big difference in your sleep quality and therefore your energy throughout the day, so then you're more reliant on the alcohol. It can also send your blood sugar into a little bit of frenzy in the middle of the night, so you might wake up feeling hungry or you can't fall back asleep. So I think if you're someone who's struggling to wind down at night, instead of going for alcohol that's going to make things worse, find things that are going to be more soothing, so magnesium, passion flower, GABA, L-theanine, a cup of chamomile. Like, there's so many different things that you could do that are going to be more beneficial in the long run. Totally. That's me. If I drink before bed, I wake up in the middle of the night, like my heart is racing. It's just not worth it. Um, and I love this new idea of everybody doing sleepy time mocktails because sometimes you just want to feel a little fancy at night. So there's definitely other options. I want to talk about hair loss because this is something that a lot of um, the women that we talk to go through, especially those struggling with PCOS, men go through it. A lot of people go through it. What are some of the root causes of hair loss and how can we support hair growth? Mm -hmm. Thyroid hormones are huge and thyroid conditions go so underdiagnosed in women. It's insane. So if you're starting to notice hair loss, I would say check out your thyroid first because that could be a big driver of it. Looking at not just a full thyroid panel with TSH, T3, T4, but also your antibodies as well to see if there's an autoimmune component to it because it's truly shocking the number of times I hear from people, I have all the symptoms of an underactive thyroid, but my doctor won't test me for it. Insane. Um, and then another big cause that I see is iron. So whether it's an iron... I shouldn't say iron, I should say anemia, actually, whether it's um, iron driven or B vitamin driven. So 
definitely check out thyroid, check out anemia. Those two are going to make a big impact on the rest of your hormones too. So oftentimes if there's a hormonal component to it where it's, you know, estrogen driven, it might actually be coming from the thyroid as the root cause where that's making an impact. And then, you know, of course, there's the route of PCOS too. If you're symptomatic for it and you're experiencing hair loss, then it very well could be higher androgens causing hair loss. So maybe not the clearest answer for what you're looking for, but there's so many different things that can feed into hair loss. Um, So I would just say, pay attention to the pattern that it's happening in and what your other symptoms are. And that will kind of gear you towards where you should start investigating first. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to talk about skin health. I know you've had your own journey with acne. I know Kay and I both separately have had our whole host of issues when it came to acne. Are there certain supplements or herbs that you recommend for anyone who's listening who's like, you know, before I get my period, I'm always breaking out. What ways can we support our skin health in that phase of our cycle? Mm -hmm. If you're noticing it more cyclical, like it's happening right before your period, definitely look deeper into estrogen and progesterone. So if you aren't in a place where you can test and you just don't know where to start, I would just start with gentle liver support because sometimes that's all you need. It might be a matter of you're not metabolizing estrogen properly out of your body. So bringing in the liver support is going to be really helpful. If there is lower progesterone levels, then Vitex can be very helpful as well. Um, If there's low estrogen, you kind of get into a little bit of a trickier area because you want to figure out why is estrogen low to begin with. So that one's a little tougher, but definitely you can still address it. You just need a little bit more of a nuanced approach. Um, But overall with acne, I've noticed more times than not, there's a really big gut link to it. So really focus in on your gut. Like, are you actually having daily bowel movements that are well-formed and easy to pass? Do you feel like you're digesting your foods well? Do you feel bloated? Because again, your skin is such a big reflection of your gut. And, you know, the gut plays such a huge role in your hormones too. So I would definitely look into that a little bit deeper. And if there were maybe three things that you recommend that somebody suspects, like, I I think my gut is in bad shape. I can't get tested. I don't know what to do. Like, where can they start? What would be three things that you recommend in that situation? Outside of diet, which we've already talked about, three supplements I would say I would recommend would be omega-3s to help support the gut lining, um, L-glutamine as well to support the gut lining. And then I would say probiotics, but you kind of want to be a little bit more careful with probiotics. I know there's a lot of different brands out there. So really spend some time vetting out, okay, what's a good quality brand? Most often the ones that you pick up at a grocery store are not it. They're just not a good enough quality. I always recommend going through Fullscript because all the brands on there are medical grade, pharmaceutical grade. They've been third-party tested. So you can start with something that has like a combination of either like bifidobacterium or lactobacillus, which are pretty abundant in our gut microbiome overall, and they can help kind of nudge things in the right direction. I always recommend taking them a night before bed because there could be a little bit of an adjustment period where you feel a little bloated initially starting a probiotic. So taking it at night is an easy way to kind of ease your way through that discomfort. But I would say if you've already dialed into your diet, you're managing your stress, you're still struggling, try some of those gentle approaches and see how that works. And one thing I noticed from my own experience on top of everything that you mentioned is blood sugar balancing meals has been game changing. And I know that's going back to like eating protein, fiber, fat, which you've preached throughout this whole interview, but 
that has also very much helped my acne. So how important is just in general, blood sugar balancing meals, I guess, to your hormones and acne? Oh, it's so important because your insulin makes such a big difference on your hormones and your acne. So when we're looking at, you know, the glands you have, the sebum glands that you have and how they're being, you know, how they're overactive, estrogen can play a role in it, androgens can play a role in it, and insulin can play a role in it as well. So we see kind of like this cyclical relationship between insulin and testosterone, where if you're not eating in a way that's supportive of your blood sugar, you can run into issues with insulin resistance. An increase in that insulin can cause an increase in your androgens and your testosterones, which is something that we see in PCOS as well. So they kind of feed off of one another and both of those in combination can cause flare-ups and acne. So the more you can get your blood sugar in check, the more you can get that mechanism under control so that you have less acne as well. I want to end on this idea of um, what you talked about in the beginning, which is the concept that a lot of women think about when they think about healthy is healthy is skinny. And I don't think we're there yet. I think a majority of people still put those two together. So as a doctor in this space, and I I assume that you work with a lot of women, what do you think it's going to take for us to get over this idea that skinny is healthy and to the idea that feeling good in our bodies and feeling strong in our bodies is healthy? Mm -hmm. That's such a good question. My first instinct is just social media can really mess with people's minds. And I think the less time you could spend on social media, the less you follow people that don't make you feel good about yourself, the less you follow influencers that maybe aren't preaching the right message. Like maybe it's under the guise of health, but you notice that maybe their idea of healthy is revolving more around weight as well. Because I can say that the thinnest I ever was in my life was probably the unhealthiest I ever was in my life. And it made such a big impact when I changed the way I was eating. And I actually put on a few pounds where my hormones finally really regulated. And I like feel good and strong and healthy in my body, as opposed to feeling like jittery all the time and feeling like, like I never knew when my period was coming and just feeling like a mess the whole time. But it's really hard because when you get on social media, you see, especially as a young teen, you see all these really curated images. You see all of these what I eat in days that really aren't healthy. And I think the biggest thing is stepping away from spaces like that and really just trying to pay attention to like your own life, your own body, your own surroundings. I unfortunately don't think these messages are going to change anytime soon. I just think that it's so ingrained in our culture that you know, there's all these beauty standards that women have to adhere to. And so I think, unfortunately, the burden kind of falls on us as the consumers of, okay, it's not going to change. So I have to change what I'm consuming. And then maybe if enough of us are really shifting gears, then we'll see bigger changes across the board. But I don't know. That's what I'm hoping, at least. But it's tough. I think it's really tough. Yeah, 100%. I um. I think that's why conversations like this are important and um, having more experts such as yourself step into the space of like, hey, this is what real health means. Same for me. When I was my skinniest, I was my unhealthiest. When I put on some more weight and actually the healthiest that I felt, which is so funny to say, is when I was pregnant. And like, you know, gearing up for that time where you put on a certain amount of weight, your estrogen is flowing, your progesterone is flowing. And it's like, that's when we were fertile. We have, you know, everything is kind of more falling into place at that point. So um, 
I super appreciate you coming on here and having this conversation with us. And I think so many women are going to get so much out of this. So thank you. Yeah, of course. This has been awesome. Thank you guys.